Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love Phil. You know, I might change that strap line. I'm getting a bit bored of it. Maybe in episode 40 I'll change it to something else. If you have any suggestions, just email them or Twitter them to at Soho. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I'm currently dosed up on Lemsip, trying to fight off a cold and hoping that my voice will remain intact until the end of this recording. Poor me. Poor, poor me, the crosses we must bear. So if you're feeling sympathetic towards me and my man flu, I'd really appreciate it if you could channel that sympathy and do me a small favour by leaving me a quick star rating and maybe even a review of Soho Bites. It'll help other people find the show. The easiest way to do that is to go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites from where you'll be guided through the very simple process. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. And I and my man flew humbly thank you in advance. The featured Soho film for this episode is East of Piccadilly from 1941. It's a title which I suppose could be a play on East of Shanghai, the Hitchcock film from a decade earlier. I think that by using this ironic title, we're invited to notice the contrast between the exotic nature of the mysterious Orient when compared to the down-at-heel character of dowdy wartime Soho. Except, and call me a pedant if you like, I think for a start, what they actually mean is not Piccadilly, but Piccadilly Circus, and Soho is not east, but northeast of Piccadilly Circus. So, think on. I think somebody wants to go and take a long, hard look at themselves. But be that as it may, joining me later in the show to talk about this seldom seen and difficult to find wartime murder mystery is somebody who's been on the podcast twice before. She's a comedian and one-third of the Talking Pictures TV podcast team, Mel Byron. On both of Mel's previous appearances on the show, I'm afraid I paired her up with films that she wasn't that keen on. So I was hoping very much that this would be third time lucky and that she'd enjoy East of Piccadilly. We'll get her verdict on the film in the second half of the programme. And before that, I'll be meeting up with somebody else who's been on the pod before, Michael J. Buchanan Dunn. Michael, a.k.a. Murder Mile Mike, is the creator of the Murder Mile True Crime podcast, and he asked me a few weeks ago if I could help him track down a particular Soho film that he'd been looking for. The film we were trying to find was apparently based on the real-life case of a Soho serial killer that he's been researching for years for his show. The film in question was East of Piccadilly, and that real-life serial killer was the Soho Strangler. In the mid to late 1930s, a short series of murders took place in Soho that sent the tabloid press into a bit of a tizzy. All the victims were women, they were all strangled, and they were all connected or perceived to have been connected in some way with the Soho sex trade. Despite these similarities though, police could not establish a motive for the killings as no robbery or sexual assault had taken place and apart from the violence that is obviously inherent in the act of murder, there was very little violence involved. 
The press soon decided that a serial killer was stalking the streets and alleyways of Soho and gave him the imaginative name The Soho Strangler. And for a couple of years, the tabloids salivated all over the story. Soho, they said, was a fearful place in the grip of a paralysing terror brought about by this unknown, unseen strangling fiend. Unlike other serial killers of days gone by, though, the Soho Strangler is today almost forgotten. You've probably heard of Crippin, you've heard of Christie, Haig, Jack the Ripper and the Boston Strangler. But of the Soho Strangler, very little is remembered. In fact, if you Google the Soho Strangler, nearly all of the entries that crop up are associated with today's first guest, Michael J. Buchanan Dunn. That's because he, for a very long time, has been researching this little-known series of murders for his extremely popular podcast, Murder Mile. At the time of recording, the third episode of Mike's 10 part... 10... 10-part series on the Soho Strangler has just been released, and this is surely the most comprehensive study of the case ever carried out. Because of this, and because today's featured film, Easter Piccadilly, is based on the real events of the Soho Strangler case, I just had to get him back on the podcast. I began by asking Mike to give me a bit of background on the case, such as who the victims were, and when and where these horrible events took place. He started uh, late 1935. Uh, his first victim was a prostitute called French Fifi. Not her real name, I assume. Not, not her real name. Uh, uh, Josephine. She had various aliases that she used, but um, um, everyone's called her French Fifi. What makes the case kind of interesting is at the start, they thought that it wasn't a murder. They actually thought it was a suicide. She was found in a room, um, no signs of a struggle, no signs of an attack, no robbery, no sexual assault. Not a suicide note, but there was kind of all the pieces that you'd expect to find of someone who's very depressed. And they said she uh, committed suicide. Is it normal to commit suicide by strangulation? See, that's the thing. It's um, it's doable. When they actually looked at her body, she'd used a half hitch knot and a half hitch knot when you tie it, it, it holds the tension. So she'd actually got on the bed, she'd taken off a stocking, which was rare because that's where she kept her money. She'd Clearly there was no assault in the room. She tied the stocking around her neck in a half hitch, which held the position. She suffered with kind of heart problems, so she passed out quite early and died. Therefore, the first doctors to look at her said, it's a suicide. But because there were two pathologists working on it, they were kind of at loggerheads. They were like... It just seemed odd to them, and they refused to say either way which one it was until they could categorically say which one. So this took about three weeks for them to decide uh, that she was murdered. But by that point, the press weren't interested anymore. They'd forgotten about it. It became a murder, but unsolved. So they forgot about it. Five months later, another lady called Marie Cotton. Same again, found in her front room by her, technically her son. He actually thought that she was asleep. He thought she'd collapsed because she was working too hard. She was found on the floor. No signs of assault, no robbery. The room was spotlessly clean. No one witnessed anyone coming in. No signs of an assault. He actually said to her, why aren't you getting up? And when he touched her hand, he realised that she was dead. Did she work in the sex trade as well? It's hard to pin down whether she was in the sex trade. Most people said that she wasn't but she was open to letting a prostitute be her lodger. So she's sex trade adjacent in a, in a way. Yeah, uh, so that, that was Marie Cotton. And what, what road was this on? So the first one was Archer Street, is that right? Archer Street's just off Old Compton Street, and the second one was Lexington Street, which is three streets north connecting Brewer Street and Broadway Street. And then the th so so there's four murders, is that right? There's four murders in total. So by the point of the second murder, the police had kind of got a suspect. It's still uncertain whether he committed that murder because eventually it, it did actually go to inquest. And they said, he's most likely to be the suspect. The police were really annoyed. They were like, he's most likely to be the person who murdered her. We just can't prove it. So unfortunately, uh, Marie Cotton's murder was declared a murder by persons unknown. But by this point, the press were really excited. They were like, OK, we've got one French brunette, early 40s, strangled, looks like it's not a murder in Archer Street. There's another one in Lexington Street. I wonder if they're connected. And they start getting really excited. Three weeks after that, another murder of a prostitute on Old Compton Street. 
And this is where the press went mental, was it? They went absolutely apoplectic. It was... The good old British tabloid press. They, they, they really... It's interesting. With the first murder, they didn't give a crap. It's like they wrote about it barely. This was like a paragraph on page 17. By the murder of Marie Cotton, the second murder, it was front page news. By the time of Dutch Leia, the third murder, wow, they're all over the shop. They actually create the term, the Soho Strangler. They're talking about panic. They're talking about people being in fear. They actually start to create this person into a monster, into a beast, into someone who was stalking Soho, kind of... Lurking in the shadows. The the fog-wreathed streets. I can't find any reports by anyone who was in Soho at that time talking about panic. It's in the press. They talk about how Soho's in panic, how women were in fear to walk down the streets. It's like apparently the police had extra police on the streets and and, uh, prostitutes were working, walking in twos. But prostitutes always walk in twos. It's kind of they always protect each other. The press whipped up this idea of Soho in panic, but I don't think there was. And it absolutely, it becomes world famous. And I think this is the interesting thing that Soho becomes a byword for crime, for prostitution, for horror, for mystery. You could say the word Soho on any national paper and any international paper and everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. So is this where Soho's reputation for that kind of stuff begins? I think it makes it international. I think when you look at Soho prior to this, you could easily say Soho and people know what you mean. But at this point... These murders, because there's a lot of correlation in the murders between not just prostitution, not just punters, but also the white slave trade. You've got drugs, uh, you've got police corruption. This really kicks it into a new gear and you can kind of see a lot of new articles where they just focus on Soho. You can It becomes something big and huge and, and kind of disgusting in a way, like Whitechapel in 1888. So the fourth murder... Yes. By this stage, the press are presumably looking out for the, the next murder, the next Soho Strangler strike moment. You would hope. Problem is, nothing happens for 18 months. Literally, it just stalls, and the press are kind of looking left and right, and they're like, what's going to happen next? And they're kind of creating stories, and they're, there's even a lady called Dorothy Raphael who they go, was she, was she attacked by the Soho Strangler? And it's like, no, of course she wasn't. She was just, <laughs> she was just in her flat, and a punter attacked her, kind of slapped her about a bit. So because nothing happens for about, I, th- I think it's technically 15 months, by the time... The final murder happens. This is a another French prostitute, this time called French Marie. Press have forgotten. They've forgotten that they created the Soho Strangler. They forgot that there were three other murders. So they actually start focusing on the murder of French Marie in, in a very ordinary way, the way they would have with every other case. And it's only in part that they start going, is this a Soho Strangler? It's like it's Remember almost that like Soho Strangler fella. Yeah. Remember who we were talking about in in big terms about three months ago, and now we've forgotten. But because World War Two happened immediately afterwards, so the last murder was uh, 1938. You've got the start of World War Two happening. You've got the ruptions happening around the world. So by the time World War Two happens, nobody cares about kind of this fantasy about there being a Soho Strangler. People have got proper things to worry about, so the Soho Strangler just disappears. What was the attitude of the press to the victims? Kind of as you would predict. Because they were connected to the sex trade, because they were foreigners, they were treated with a lot of disdain. So it was quite, almost kind of regarded like, because of their background, they deserved to die. Or, or, or kind of, they were murdered because a moral guardian was kind of looking looking out to murder them. Same as Jack the Ripper. They always regard Jack the Ripper as a moral guardian who was attacking fallen women. Same here as well. And is there any suggestion that the police's inquiry was less um, diligent because of the perceived professions of these women? It's interesting going through uh, the police reports because they, the, there's an attitude pervasive in all of the documentation. So I use all the court records and the police files. Um, and when you read them, Quite often the the prostitutes will give um, a witness statements and they'll go, well, obviously they're full of lies because they're prostitutes. They're all liars. With the final uh, murder, the um, French Marie, the, on the first page of the police report, 
they make reference to the fact that she was probably attacked because she was fat, old, and ugly. What? And you just go... It says that? Yeah. Page one of the police report. In fact, they said the same with the first victim as well. They said it's most likely she was attacked because she was trying to overcharge a man. And because she was old, fat, and ugly, he didn't accept that. But we're old, fat, and ugly. Well, (laughs) I mean, we're we're old and uh, round and beautiful. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. There's a a subtle distinction there. Um, The reason I was asking before about the attitude of the press towards the women is that I find the the attitude of the film that we're talking about later on with Mel, East of Italy, to to the one victim we see, quite sympathetic. Mm-hmm. She's not portrayed as a kind of um, toothless old crone saying, hello, dearie. She's an ordinary woman who is clearly doing this because she has to earn a living. And uh, she's a disappointed singer. She's trying to get a singing career off the ground. And that felt, that feels quite progressive in a way for that, for that era compared to... As you say, what I imagine the press coverage was like. I was put onto the film by you because you said it's loosely based on this case. <laughs> I didn't know the film, although I did have it on my hard drive, as it turned out. There's not a lot to connect them apart from the murder of a sex worker at the, at the beginning. I mean, it's, how how did you come across this idea that they were Issa Piccadilly was based on the Soho Strangler? I was going through the news archive, typed in Soho Strangler, found a, a surge in the middle of the, uh, in 1942, and I thought, oh, he's attacked again. 1942, I got really excited, and then I realised it was just uh, press reports about a screening of Easter Piccadilly. But it's odd that they didn't use the title The Soho Strangler. Well, in America, it's called The Strangler. Oh, OK. And they always have a, a less subtle title uh, in America, the American release. I like Easter Piccadilly. I think it's quite a nice, yeah. it's quite exotic sounding. Uh, did I read somewhere that there was another bunch of killings a few years later that there were, that were ascribed to the Soho Scrambler? <laughs> Soho Scrambler, <laughs> no egg is safe. <laughs> the, the, these killings that were sub- ascribed to the Soho Strangler, but they, I mean, were they? It's interesting. Oh, so when was this? It's sort of ten years later or so. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 1947, 1948. The the press have tried this many times because the Soho Strangler was so interesting around kind of mid-1930s that you can see that they they were like, let's try it again. One of them is the murder of Ginger Ray, uh, who was stabbed to death in her room. Um, Was that in Soho? uh, Yeah, actually, it was on uh, it was just off Lexington Street. So that was Ginger Ray. That's still unsolved. Uh, another one was Russian Dora over in Covent Garden. Uh, she was stabbed to death. Again, not a straggling. Another one was Margaret Cook in Carnaby Street. So literally the other side of um, uh, Berwick Street. She was shot. Uh, there was another one as well. I can't remember who it was. But none of them were strangled. This is this is even more tenuous than the link between the case and the film. <laughs> but the press were all over it. They were like, oh, my God, look at all these mur- murders of, of prostitutes in Soho area. Unfortunately, it's a very violent trade. The murder of prostitutes is unfortunately quite regular, but it just never gets talked about in the press until there's a group of them together and then suddenly people are talking. So without giving away anything from your own series, <laughs> would, would it, are you suggesting that there is no such thing as the Soho Strangler. There is a lot to explore with this. There could be a Soho Strangler. There might not be a Soho Strangler. They, I've spent years researching this, and I think I've come close or closer than anyone else ever. The final episode, let's just say it's very close. It's very close to whether I've solved it or not. Thank you, Mike, for that return visit to Soho Bites. If you would like to catch up with the Soho Strangler series on Murder Mile and, of course, listen to any of the other many episodes on tons of other cases, you can find everything you need at MurderMileTours.com and on Twitter you'll find him on at MMileTours. If you're already a listener to Murder Mile, you'll have recognised the music I used earlier as the theme tune from the show. It's called Man in a Bag by Cult With No Name from their 2017 album, Air of the Dog. Don't worry about scribbling any of that down, though. All of that stuff, what I have just said at you, can be found in the show notes for this episode at the only address you really need, SohoBitesPodcast.com. (laughs) 
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. On a smoggy Soho street, Greek street we're told, a young woman stops at a street vendor to buy a bag of hot peanuts. Evening, Ginger. Peanuts? As Ginger, the peanut seller, watches on, she turns and enters number 175 Greek street with a man whose face is obscured by his collar and hat. The woman is Sadie, a singer whose career is not going too well, so until things improve, she has turned to sex work. Sadly for Sadie, who is played by Idana Romney, she's made a very poor choice of punter in the man she's just brought up to her room this evening, as she's about to meet her death at his hands, strangled with one of her own stockings. As she lies on the floor, dead, her cat laps up some spilt milk and the record she just put on is stuck in the groove, repeating the same half line over and over. This ominous opening scene of Easter Piccadilly is short, effective and powerful. It displays directorial flair and inventiveness and sets the tone for a serious story about a serious subject, the brutal murder of defenceless women in their homes. But this doesn't last long. Even before that cat has slurped up the last of the milk, we're taken away from Soho and over to a well-appointed flat in a more salubrious part of town for a private book launch. Here we meet the author Tamsy, yes, that's Tamsy Green, an adult human male person called Tamsy Green, played by Sebastian Shaw. And it's not long before we have a classic meet-cute where Tamsy meets Penny Sutton, played by Judy Campbell. Penny, not realising who she's talking to, had just been making derisory comments about Tamsie's new book. You know, I could write that kind of thing in my sleep. Really? Do you know something about these detective writers? If ever they came across a crime in real life, their only hope of solving it would be if the murderer tattooed his name and address on the body. And his telephone number. Now, how do you come by this superior act of yours? Well, it's no act. You see, I learned my crime firsthand. Oh, you're... A crime reporter. Is your name by any chance Penny Sutton? Mm-hmm. What's yours? Tamsie Green. Oh. oh dear. This is what they call an awkward moment, isn't it? Shall I just slip unobtrusively away? And we have that meat cute because Easter Piccadilly isn't really that atmospheric noirish thriller that we thought it was. It's actually a rom-com in which this ill-matched couple, she's a feisty lady crime reporter and he's a hobby crime novelist, fall in love while investigating the murder of the unfortunate Sadie. It's a bit jarring to be suddenly in this frivolous world in which silly posh people say silly posh things to each other, particularly as the film was supposedly based on a very recent true story. It must have seemed even more peculiar to audiences in America where the film was released under the title The Strangler, and I can't help thinking that there must be a more interesting film to be made about the Soho Strangler, But once the viewer has made that adjustment, it's okay, it's quite good fun, and there's some enjoyment to be had from the couple's contrived courtship. Along the way, we meet several potential suspects as Tamsie and Penny try to piece together the case. There's Joe, played by Niall McGuinness. He works in the cafe next door to Sadie's lodging house and seems to have some very off-colour opinions about women in her line of work. Not the singing line of work, the other line of work. Occupying other rooms in 175 Greek Street are two more potential suspects. There's Mark Struberg, played by George Hayes, who's a delusional actor and blatantly as mad as a box of frogs. 
Most potent, grave and reverend seniors. Handkerchief. Uh, handkerchief? Where should a fellow go? No. How dost thou look now? Oh, ill starred wench, pale as thy smock. You don't like a fellow. You don't applaud. You are afraid of a fellow. We also have a mysterious American played by George Pugh, who, for some reason, goes by more than one name and seems very out of place in this shabby Soho lodging house. The Scotland Yard investigation is nominally being run by an inspector only ever referred to as Mac, played by Henry Edwards, and at one point he thinks he has his man. But there's a twist in the tale which gets him off the hook. Ultimately, of course, unlike in the case of the real-life Soho Strangler, the murderer is identified and captured thanks to some extremely implausible detective work by Tamsey and Penny. So, everything is okay with the world again, apart from the Second World War, of course, which must be raging on somewhere, this being 1941, but weirdly, it never gets a mention. East of Piccadilly was directed by Harold Huth, who was known more as an actor than a director, and was written by J. Lee Thompson, who was known more as a director than a writer, a highly accomplished director at that. Thompson based his screenplay on a story provided by somebody called Gordon Beckles, who has just one film credit to his name. Beckles was a reporter working in London throughout the 1930s, and I suspect he was possibly involved in writing about the Soho Strangler case back in the 30s, but I've not been able to confirm this. So Mel Byron's back on the show to talk about Easter Piccadilly. I had to get her on the show because she's staggeringly knowledgeable about British films of the 1940s, a decade that she says is the greatest in UK film history. Bearing that in mind, how does this film stand up? Where would Mel put it in the rankings of 1940s British films? When I held you that night in the light of a honey-coloured moon Given that I, I only watched it, even though it was on my long list of things to watch, uh, I was only spurred on to watch it because I knew I was going to be talking to you. Probably quite low down, <laughs> I would have thought. And having watched it, it hasn't really risen that much higher. It's interesting, it's a period piece, as many of these things are, but I wouldn't say that it's... It, sort of elevates the decade in any way whatsoever. No. I'm going to give a quick shout out for a couple of things that I do like about it. The opening scene, I think that's quite impressive. Foggy, smoggy Soho Street, the poor victim leads the, the faceless murderer up to her room. We feel sympathy for her. Uh, for her position, not for being murdered, but we're not led to believe that she's come some kind of strumpet. I thought, was, oh, that's quite good, I thought. No, exactly, because I think she... Um, there's a lot packed into that scene. So it's very clear that her career as a singer has not taken off and she's doing what it isn't said she's doing, but what we assume she is doing as a living now. Simply for that reason, she has a girl must live. She she has to make a living. So yeah, I feel, I, I do actually really feel for her, and and there's a, the sense of menace is is really good in that scene as well. I think particularly because we don't see his face. She's what they call in the film a daughter of joy. Yes, <laughs> it uh, wasn't the phrase I come across before. Um, I also think that the there's a character who lives a couple of floors down from the victim, who's an actor. Yes, he's hilarious. I mean, what was the purpose of of involving him? I I mean, I I wondered if it was light relief one, and I wondered also if it was meant to be a particular person, if there was some kind of elaborate in-joke there. So, again, he's somebody whose career has it. He's this failed Shakespearean actor, hammy as heck, and I wonder if they were all having a good laugh and they're all looking at the script and going, oh, we know who that is. Right, yeah. I, that occurred to me as well, actually. Because he, he refers to critics, specific critics that he, that, that he hates. Yeah, exactly. And it, is, it has a, a little whiff of theatre of blood about it. You just think, you've only taken the Vincent Price route. But that's taking us into a very different decade, indeed. It, it, it's, a, it's an odd one because it's... I mean, we'll talk about the, the sort of the general tone of the film, uh, which is something that kind of bothers me. The other thing, the third thing I quite like 
is the court scene because it's very efficient. And what the judge does is we don't see anything in the court at all, apart from the judge summing up, who just does this piece to camera, which is what you've heard is this, this and this, and then like little kind of vignettes and shots of... It'll say you'll see a headline in the newspaper that says so and so has been arrested, so and so has been charged. So you know everything happens in about five minutes. I thought it was quite good. Thought was I all... thought that was good. I mean, clearly the, it was made on a tiny budget, and I thought in terms of tightness and economy, I thought they they delivered that quite well. I mean, I think with the judge, uh, it's clear which way you know the judge in a in a case and certainly in a murder case will be directing the jury but by heck he directed them he really does not <laughs> he yeah. told them exactly what the result was going to be which of course you know back in those days there was much more jeopardy involved than there is now because you know if you got found guilty it's a whole other so I don't want to give I don't give it away no we don't know <laughs> if that person gets found guilty yeah. or not so the tone of the film i mean we've just been hearing from mike murder mile mike about the Soho Strangler, upon which this film is based, supposedly. And yet, it was obviously very serious, and people died, you know, were killed, murdered. And yet, this film is a sort of lightweight kind of knockabout rom-com. It is. The lead character reminds me of exactly a similar character that Valerie Hobson plays in a couple of films. I mean, Valerie Hobson would have eaten this for breakfast. I mean, it's so like... But that wise-cracking female crime reporter, the film, I think, is trying to capture the tone of, well, I mean, the great film Q Planes, if you know that, which was made in 39. I've just got it on DVD. I've not not watched it yet. It's magnificent. Excellent. It's magnificent. And there's some great snappy dialogue and... Valerie Hobson and Laurence Olivier, who you don't imagine as that kind of snappy hero, kind of work really well together. And she's brilliant. And I thought, I felt that with Judy Campbell, they would, they'd kind of looked at that and thought, that's what we're going for. Mm. And maybe the budget wasn't big enough for Valerie. So she turned them down. Yeah, I, I thought maybe they're trying to emulate the Thin Man films. There's that. I mean, the thing with the Thin Man, of course, is part of the snappiness is they're already married. And, and and so it's kind of the unusual thing about those films was it was a kind of insight into married life as well. The ter- there's, there's also an uh, unpublished story with Valerie Hobson and Richard Gree, and they aren't married either. Similarly, our two lead characters here, there's, again, a little bit of tension. And you look at those three films, Q Planes, Unpublished Story and this – there's a similar pattern. Man and woman meet, a lot of tension between them, but she's the snappy reporter. She's the one delving into the mystery. And and after a bit of back and forth, you know where this is going, and they end up, of course, uh, going off into the sunset. I don't think I'm giving too much No, away. I, think, I think we know that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. That's going to happen. And I felt that that's what they were trying, That you know, particularly Q-Planes, they'd watch that and thought, yeah, that's what we're aiming for. But then again, Sebastian Shaw isn't, Laurence Olivier. Either. No, he's not at all. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> impressed at all by Sebastian Shaw. No. I've only seen him in this one film before, this um, Three Witnesses, where he plays a sort of petulant, stroppy younger brother. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not a terrible film. I mean, I have, I have a taste for that kind of <laughs> mundane films from the 30s. Um, and I quite enjoyed it. But it's when I saw Sebastian Shaw in this, I looked at IMDb and I said, oh, he's in that as well. I hadn't remembered him from yeah. Three Witnesses. I only watched it about three weeks ago. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what about the rest of the cast? There's, you know, there's some good faces in there. Um, there's Niall McGuinness, who's always worth watching. This uh, is Joe, the, the Joe... mandolin playing exactly. cafe owner. Um, and he's quite an interesting, because at first I didn't recognise him, because he's much leaner. Than he is normal. He's usually you know, a big chunky fella, like he is in in Forty Ninth Parallel, and a slightly kind of bumbling character. But here he's he's very tall and lean, so I didn't quite recognise him. Yeah, it was interesting to see him to sort sort of young and in a very different role. And then of course there's Martita Hunter's his mum, and again a world away from Miss Havisham as well. So we're going to kind of get an insights into character into actors, I should say. 
before they become more famous for other things. So that's always good. I mean, it's like when you watch you know, any of the quota quickies and things like that, or these um, early 40s, low-budget British films, you're looking out for the faces. And I, I love a good faces film where you go, oh, yeah, it's such and such and that's such and such. Um, and so, yeah, there were a couple of good actors in there who had yet to come to the fore in film. I mean, Martita Hunt, obviously, I think it was Great Expectations, everybody remembers her for, which was, what, 46, so four or five years later. Nobody really stood out, I'll be honest. No. I mean, it was, it was apart, all... Apart from the actor geezer. But, um... Apart from the actor geezer. <laughs> it's often the way in these old films from this sort of period, either, oh, there's people from before they were properly famous, or this was the last of five films that he did or the last of three films yeah. that he did or, you know. Never to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit like the woman who plays um, Sadie, the murder victim at the beginning. Yes, Ad- Adana Romney. Yeah, yeah, who I didn't really know. In fact, the, generally there's top trivia about lots of the cast because I had to properly kind of Google these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Judy Campbell, famous for being Jane Birkin's <laughs> mum, which is mad. And actually I thought Judy Campbell was... Really nice, really. I really liked her. She's, I mean, slightly cheesy part. And the, it is a cheesy, cheesy part. Lines and... But I just, I just kept feeling, oh, yeah, she's trying to channel Valerie Hobson and it's not working. And, and I thought to myself, I thought maybe she just doesn't have that that sort of skittishness. And then, then I read because, like you, I had to do a bit of research, and I looked at it and I thought I didn't realise that she had originated the role of Elvira, or is it Elvira? I can never remember in Blythe Spirit on oh, stage. Now that I is can completely see that that is a completely she's skittish. The, she's role. the dead. The That's dead wife. the ghost. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that Perfect. that role is pure is pure skittishness. Yeah. And I, okay, so maybe on stage it was maybe she just came across better on stage. So so this was I, I just could I thought in my mind I thought I can't see Judy. Campbell doing doing this, but yeah, I thought she was all right. Mm. But I still did. I don't think she really hit the high notes, to no. be honest. And then Sebastian Shaw, he he then ended his career in Star Wars, yeah, or some a Star Wars or one of the Star Wars films. Yeah, it was. I think it was Return of the Jedi. It's, he plays. Like, like, listen to us, like, talking yeah. like we know it's anything. Something to do with space or something, <laughs> so, I don't know. Well, apparently that's um, what he said when he bumped into a friend of his. And he said, oh, what are you doing here? And he went, oh, I'm doing some science fiction thingy. Yeah. He didn't know what he was in either. And it was like half half an hour's work for him or something. I think it took more time to put the makeup on. It was quite a key role, isn't it? But a small one. Yeah, yeah. I can mention it to my son, who's a bit of a Star Trek nut, and he said, oh, God, oh, that one, yeah. Oh, Star yeah, yeah. Wars, you see. This is, we Did I just say Star Trek? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we can't tell the difference. <laughs> oh, oh, God. L- L- Spock Skywalker. <laughs> um, and another top triv, um, Adina Romney, Edna Romney, Adana Romney. Adana Romney. Did you see 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 how how she ended up in her life? She was. Have you seen the film See How They Run? Uh, The one about the mousetrap that came out last year. Because she's actually she's in it. I can't remember who plays her because she married one of the brothers. Romulus and Remus brothers. Okay. John, I can't remember it. And the, the film See How They Run is yes. about how he wants to make a film of the mousetrap. And he can't do it because it, there's a clause, isn't yeah. there, that says they can't do it until it's off stage. For six is, months. Yeah. And of course it's been on stage for seven years. But Good she joke. is married to um, the guy from Romulus Remus and she is actually in that film somebody plays her I can't remember oh. who it is yeah I have to go back I like that film yeah actually. it's a good film isn't it yeah mm. but it, she in real life she ended her days well she spent the rest of her life basically as a kind of Beverly Hills hostess yeah <laughs> living in um, John Barrymore's house yeah. um, not Xanadu was it one of those sort of places yeah and was you know renowned for this, throwing these parties in Beverly Hills and that's well, I think it was her husband's money for all his, you know. Yeah, I'm his, sure his, it was. I mean, yeah. He, you know, they made things like Room at the Top and, and things like that. So, yeah. You know, big international films. So, but she um, wasn't in them. <laughs> she wasn't in them, but, you know, Hubby was making them. So yeah. The person with the most impressive CV from film that was J. Lee Thompson. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I was like, oh, I know that name. Yeah, yeah, I still yeah. have to Google it because uh, I have no memory for anything. <laughs> but he only wrote it. He didn't direct it. Yeah. Was... But on his CV, a, a film like Yield to the Night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Woman in a Dressing Gown. Yeah. 
Ice Cold Alex, yeah, and then the things Guns like the Guns of Navarro. Navarro. Yeah, he kind of he ended up specialising, I think, in these big action things. Yeah, um, but he'd also done some of these domestic dramas. I mean, Yield to the Night. Oh my goodness, Yield to the Night is one of those. Films, I've only ever watched it once. I can't. It's one of those films. It's so powerful. I, I can't watch it again. Diana Dawes is magnificent yeah. in that film. And, and you know, he was cutting his teeth on, on little films like this, the writing, the directing, and then he was cutting his teeth and eventually became this, this huge director yeah. of well, Gregory huge... Peck, people like that. Yeah. Planet of the Apes films. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's mad, isn't it? And yet he was doing this little low-budget bit of Fluff, <laughs> to yeah. be honest, yeah. But, I mean, job's a job, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And everybody starts somewhere. Do you know about Harold Huth? Huth? He was Huth? an actor, wasn't he? Yeah, is he the spiv in the cafe? In the, in the film? Is yeah. he in it? Well, ah. that person isn't credited in the film, and he looks a bit, you know, difficult to tell those days, yeah. brill cream and little thin moustaches and stuff. Oh, um, it could be. I wonder if it was him and he just didn't bother to credit himself. Yeah, it could be doing a bit of a Hitchcock on us. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Oh, no, I'll have to go and watch it again, won't I? I'll have to. Just that bit. <laughs> just that just, He does come over to Joe in the cafe and have a few words with him. It seemed to be a bit of a pointless exchange. I wonder if they were you know, just giving us a kind of few suspects to play with, as they, they often do in these things. Yeah, because so. he's quite a dodgy character. Yeah. So there are, there are, I mean, he could be a suspect. Joe could be a suspect. Yeah. The actor could be a suspect. suspect yeah. um, the American man. The American who, who is or isn't an American. Yeah. His accent was all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got a note here that says, Greek street, my arse. What? <laughs> Quite. I know. I mean, I know it's changed since the war, but heck. <laughs> it looks like um, a muse in Knightsbridge yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I know, it doesn't. It, it didn't have that that sort of compactness that I think of Soho as having, which it must have had even back even before sure there were all did, those yeah. cars, mm. even the cars and all the bars and stuff. Though, you know, these are these are the, the with this is the with the streets was back a hundred years ago that we see now, and also I don't know, was it? Could people afford to... I mean, nobody can afford to live on Greek Street now. I oh assume. God, no! Uh, but there's lots of references in the film to. Um, you know, he grew up in, he was born on Greek Street, i.e. born into poverty. Right, yeah, um, yeah. And he was born in that house as well. The demographics of the area were different, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely, the yeah. So this this was made, well, it was released in 41 here and 42 in the States or vice versa, I'm not quite sure mm. which. Either way, it's the height of the Second World yeah. War. It doesn't the war doesn't get much of a look in. It really doesn't, does it? I know, I was, I was kind of waiting for some... I was waiting for the blackout to have some kind of yeah. relevance and and it just didn't happen and maybe i'd been distracted a bit by unpublished story with with Valerie Hobson which comes around comes out around the same time in which the war is the thrust of the story so i'm waiting for sirens and the blackout because if ever was there was a time for a strangler to strike yeah. you know this would be it but no it doesn't it's not mentioned at all uh, Sebastian Shaw's character, the ridiculously named Tamsey. Tam- <laughs> <laughs> Tamsey. So playing fields of Eton. Why is he not in the service? I mean, of course, men, lots of men weren't for various reasons, but he was certainly of, an, of the right age, mm. you know, at least to be going fire watching. But of course, there was no fire to watch because yeah. there was no war. <laughs> Except at the very end. I, I don't think this is not a spoiler because it, this happens after the conclusion mm. of the film. But in the very final scene, they mention the lights of Piccadilly. Tamsin, not here. Under the lights of Piccadilly. Look at them. They're more than just lights. They're a promise that everything's all right with the world. The all's well signal. If they ever go out, we'd have something to cry about. If they did, they'd come on again. And we'd be standing here, waiting for them. That has to be a reference to the war, doesn't it? Well, and it just tacked on at the end. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I wonder if that actually made it into the American version, because sometimes because it felt very tacked on. I wonder if the American version doesn't have that, because sometimes they, because that wouldn't have made any sense, I don't think, to to the American audiences, or would it? Well, maybe uh, it was. Maybe it was in the American, not in the British. Or, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah because yeah. it's you know there was lots of 
pressure on the Americans to join the war. This was the point at which, yes, they were still kind of isolationists. And, yeah. yeah, so maybe, maybe that was one of those rousing things. But there were, if they wanted to rouse the Americans to, to enter the war, there were so many better films doing that, mm. you know. Um, Leslie Howard was making a war films. Powell and Pressburger were making... There were so many better films doing... Yeah. <laughs> they really didn't need that. So, oh, well, now, since this <laughs> low-budget, jaunty rom-com <laughs> has told us, we better join in, lads. Yeah. Also, they could have had, like, a German suspect, an Italian suspect, yeah. a Japanese <laughs> <Yeah>. suspect. <clears throat> No, that strip was really strange that it doesn't even get a mention. And and it's not like it's set before the war, is it? No, it, it, it's it, clearly it's... Con- in contemporary times. Yeah. Um, and if it was set in, let's say, early 1939, why not tell us that? You know, yeah. So that, that put, sets us in a time and a place. Yeah, it's a bit strange. Yeah. Well, something that bothers me, and this isn't really, really the film's fault, it's just the attitude of the time. So sexist. Yeah, I'm saying this on, be- on behalf of you, a lady, um, <laughs> because there's sort of a bit of banter back and forth between Tamsi and Penny. <laughs> oh, get- oh, you're going to marry me, aren't you? No, I'm not. You certainly are, madam. And, um, <laughs> and eventually she falls for his charms and, and therefore has to stop working. Yeah. That's just a given. Yeah, yeah. She's mental. Uh, and there's um, there's a scene where they're going to do a sort of a setup that evening and the police chief who is the biggest snob I've ever met in my whole life, says, they say, what should you do now? He said, you go home and change and meet us back later. Like, what do you mean go home and change? (laughs) She's dressed perfectly fine. Thank you very much. Was she supposed to be dressing more seductively? Was that what they were? Because she was in her work suit. Well, then she was in her work suit. She was in a perfectly... Yeah. Her clothes were fine. Uh, we haven't talked about the inspector either, have we? Because he was a great actor, director in his day, Henry Edwards. I'd say I don't know anything about him. Mm, Tell me he, about him. He was um, he was a, a huge, a, a, I think a pretty big star in, in British silent films and then became a director and directed quite a lot of films. And then, so then he, he wasn't seen on screen for a long time and then suddenly he appears again around this time as a kind of more father figure, a senior figure. So he pops up in quite a lot of films as as a venerable gentleman, um, like a doctor or so. He's also in Green for Danger playing a doctor as well. And very handsome when you look at old pictures of him. He's he's really handsome, but as he kind of usually you see him as a grey haired sort of authoritarian judge. Exactly. So yeah, an interest an interesting character. He just seems to spend his whole time in this film being rude to working class people. Yeah, yeah. Being yeah don't, I don't care what you're I mean, literally says, I don't want to hear what you've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> just and, and then, you know, there'd be complaints about him to, oh to, my God, to yeah. some, some authority. And he is also uber uber sexist. And yet he allows Tamsi, who has nothing to do with anything it, full free reign in and out of his office in Scotland, George, you know, whereas at least Penny is actually a crime reporter, so does have some connection with what's going on. Tamsey, none whatsoever. That's but, always the way, isn't it? Yeah. They all say, um, some amateur will say to the police, indulge me one moment, get your men round that corner there, I'm going to try something yeah. here. <laughs> it's all a bit Lord Peter Whimsy, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to talk about those pathetic plot points of the um, cigar band and the, yeah. the cutlery. And that's a yeah. sort of quite common thing, isn't it? So. Yeah. I mean, the cigar band was just so... Oh, look, it's the same cigar band. What, there's really only two people or one person in the whole... Yeah. <laughs> that happens so often. It's often like um, it's the same brand of Turkish cigarettes. Yes, yes, that pops up a lot. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, there's, <laughs> um, and there's, they managed to uh, narrow in on a, a suspect. Yeah. Because of the way they set the table. Yeah, which, yeah. Because uh, of the way the cutlery was, which yeah, is a bit implausible. But to be honest, I think five minutes in, when we first meet the perpetrator, I was pretty sure that's who we were going for. It felt like they were pointing us in that direction. Yeah, although I did completely fall for the red herring as well. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, he does do a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's but not the baddest of bad things. Exactly. It doesn't make him a, a murderer and a whatever else. No, yeah. exactly. But I was pretty sure that that's that there. The way that the perpetrator was presented, I felt like they were lingering and saying, 
you want to keep an eye on yeah. this bloke because I think <laughs> this is the one we're going for. I think we've done well there. We've, 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 kept, we've, we've been quite discreet with yeah, the... Yeah, uh, with, the, with <laughs> the outcome. Yeah. There. There's one person listed in the credits who is, is a guy called Gordon Beckles. Mm-hmm. Did you see that name? No, I don't recall that. So Gordon Beckles has got one film credit to his name, which is this film. He was actually a reporter. So he's listed in the, in the credits as something like plot or something like So he didn't do the script or anything, mm. but he came up with the scenario. And I wonder if he worked on the the actual case, the Sandra Strangler uh, case. Okay. And he did sort of live in the area and that kind of thing, right. from what I gather. But I, I can't find anything about him. I, I, Murder Mile Mike didn't know. and mm. um, well, Maybe I, maybe even at least he knew the people who were involved. Because from, from what I understood from, from, from listening to Mike and, and reading up, um, it was the media that created this idea of the Soho Strangler. Yeah. Uh, that they may or may not have actually been one individual person. Now, this film is very squarely on the side of, yeah, there's only one person. But I think And he this, gets caught. And he gets caught. So it's all nice, neatly wrapped up. But yeah, the idea of there being a, a strangler. But it, I don't know. I just feel like the film's a bit, a bit jaunty mm. for what is actually quite a bleak theme, which is, you know, four women died if those deaths may or may not be connected. But yeah, ooh, hello, hello, Thamesy. Yeah. And yeah, it's those posh people running around yeah. solving the murder. Many thanks to the woman with a film brain the size of a planet, Mel Byron, for coming on Soho Bites. I did ask Mel, who is of course a presenter on the Talking Pictures TV podcast, if she knew of any plans to show Easter Piccadilly on the channel, but she wasn't aware of any. It is really hard to find this film. And I would love to see it on a decent print, as the one I have is a bit rough. So I hope they do show it one day. I might drop them a line to request it. If you'd like to take part in the Talking Pictures TV podcast, they're always looking for people to submit film reviews, and I'm sure Mel would love to hear from you if you would like to be a contributor. All you have to do is drop a line to talkingpicturestvpodcast at gmail.com, and somebody will get back to you to explain the very simple process. I've put links in the show notes to Mel's social media and website, as well as to those of the Talking Pictures TV podcast. Do get in touch with them. You'll find those details, plus all the info about Murder Mile and some interesting odds and ends on the topics discussed in the episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Oh, and having looked again at some pictures of Harold Huth, the director of Easter Piccadilly, I'm pretty sure that he is the spiv from the cafe in the film, so it looks like he was either emulating Hitchcock by doing a cameo or he was trying to save money on actors by doing the scene himself. i put that on the show notes as well. If you want to get in touch with the show to praise or admonish, you can do so on Twitter. The handle is at Soho, or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. As mentioned earlier, I'd be very grateful if you could leave us a review. Remember my man flew on my sore throat? You can do that at ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I will, of course, be back next month for yet another episode of Soho Bites. So until then, take care of yourselves on those dark and smoggy Soho streets or wherever you happen to be. And bye for now.